This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have as our special guest, Dr. Ravi Iyer, physician, scientist, inventor, author, and entrepreneur with research publications in the mechanisms of gene controls and several patents on veterinarian human medicines. And I'm Mary Elkins. Dr. Iyer serves as the CEO of Active Power Inc., a nutrition and wellness company he founded. His passion is educating and advocating for a balanced understanding and stewardship of our lives and world in a manner that allows for all-around growth and health for all creatures and populations. Welcome, Ravi. Oh, thank you. We always sound better on paper, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I love that comment. Yeah. We, know, we know you do a wide variety of things, so please tell us about your background and how you came to this amazing place in your life. Well, I, I grew up in Bombay. Uh, I was born in Bombay. I grew up in India, Eastern India. So my background is that of growing up in a, a pretty spiritual Eastern uh, philosophy environment, uh, uh, healing and uh, Medicinal activities was part of everyday cooking in any Indian kitchen. About uh, in India, uh, if you look at the classic uh, Southern Indian diet, about forty uh, percent of the everyday meal is actually medicinal. Mm. Oh. And and the reason for that is in the tropical countries, disease prevalence is high, so. Culturally, those cultures have evolved to use um, the medicinal properties of various herbs to uh, spice up their food. But in the process of spicing up, they actually contribute to uh, giving your daily dose of medicinal uh, medications through the everyday meals you make. Hmm. Uh, things like uh, pepper, ginger, turmeric, uh, various basil leaves, uh, various uh, herbs and roots, they all have uh, multiple therapeutic activities ranging from pain control, inflammation to digestive or or even reproductive benefits. So. Uh, that is standard fare. So my father used to take me uh, shopping every Sunday. There was this big farmer's market mm -hmm. spread out over five acres field. 
and uh, we would tour the market. So the market was divided into two sections. There was a wet market section, which was the southern side of the field, and the northern side of the field was all the vegetables and the herbs and plants. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a central lane that separated. So on this side, you would see uh, butchers, uh, fish mongers uh, selling either uh, dead fish or even live fish uh, that they would harvest and uh, and prepare for you right there or poultry all being sold on this side so my father used to take me around to we would first do a survey and then he would find out which stall had the lowest uh, the, the most uh, the best deal on tomatoes and where you would have the best deal on <laughs> okra and we would go around and then finally then we would start shopping <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but he would also tell me you know, okay this is good for the stomach this is good for joints your grandma's joints uh, she would like this but so in this way i picked up a lot of medicinal information just uh, organically just by osmosis mm-hmm. um, and then later on when i went into medical school i learned the western side of medicine and went on to do uh, hardcore genetic engineering and science. So when I finally came out on the other end of the educational pipeline, I had this huge body of non-quantifiable organic information that I had absorbed that I could marry with my technical information from the West. So I could straddle both sides with very great comfort. And uh, I brought that into my practice for my patients. I would actually make medicines or prescribe them. Depending on the patient, I could customize it. So that was very, yeah, that was the story. Where do you practice? Oh, in Virginia, uh, Um, Northern Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. Do you do do phone uh phone interviews and phone uh, yeah, we do, we do, we, yeah, we do telemedicine uh, for patients who are uh, out of, but um, with the pandemic, the restrictions on you doing interstate medicine was not that much, but now that the pandemic is over, those restrictions have come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can't practice, I can't give medical advice across state boundaries. Oh. If I need to have a, for example, in California, you're on the West Coast, right? Yes. Where, where on the West Coast are you? You're in Riverside. Los California. Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. So I'm going to need a California license to do telemedicine mm. in California. Oh. I see. Mm. But well, can, you, can you advise like uh, herbs and spices via telemedicine or not? Yeah. I. Yes. Yes and no. I, I try not to get too deep into. Uh, giving telephone consultations uh, because then there is a there is a responsibility. It's not just passing advice. There's a responsibility to actually being responsible for the outcome. And if I'm not able to actually interact with the person, then I can't control the outcome. And I right. and uh, that is the unfortunate difficulty of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, as Kathy mentioned earlier, and uh, you, you are involved in a variety of things. So what drives you every day? So, so the, you know, I have many gifts. Uh, I have many talents and I have one gift. 
And the one gift that I found when I was very young was that I could make somebody become calm. Is that is something that I instinctively found out when I was a teenager. Mm. Uh, wow. And the talents I do. So one of the big things is I can. I found out instinctively that I had the ability to be a space wherein the narrative that drives various people, they are able to step away from that narrative and experience a little freedom from that narrative. And I'm going to expand on that a little bit. We all experience life in two modes. One mode is the actual experience. The other mode is the conversation we have about the experience. So I found out very early on that I can make people feel calm around me. And the mm-hmm. thing is that I found out that I could help them shut off the narrative that bothers them. Mm-hmm. And this ability to help people experience a space where they are not a victim of the story of whatever they are saying about their experience allows mm-hmm. them to view the experience divorced from the conversation about it. Mm-hmm. This this ability to separate these two is very powerful if you know how to do it. Most of us experience it accidentally, mm-hmm. but a few of us can cultivate the ability to tap into this ability to divorce experience away from conversation at will. When you do that, you actually experience freedom mm. and nice. that freedom is very contagious so if you can be a space so that is my gift the well, rest of the rest of what i do all my talents my ability to write my ability to speak elo- eloquence my articulation my scientific capacity intelligence analysis all of that are instruments that I use for this one gift. Nice. Well, can you give any advice for those of our listeners who would really like to hear about changing the way they feel about their lives and their story? So before you can change, you need to be able to stop being a victim mm. or a reaction to it. Most of us do not really have thoughts. Our thoughts have us. That is, we don't really own the thinking that we have. Mm-hmm. They just pop up and dominate our attention. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, in so most of us go through life bouncing from one random uh, as victims, as victims of one random thought to the next, to the next, to the next. And we don't really live life. We ping pong ourselves through life, being battered from thought to thought. Mm-hmm. Interesting concept. This, it is an extremely ineffective and very, very, um, I would say, weak way of living the potential that we all are gifted with. 
Now, the only way to to free ourselves from that is to cultivate our ability to separate this aspect of our own brain that does this. See, the ability, this property of the brain to create a story of about experience is an intrinsic function of our survival mode. Mm. It is an instrument given to us to help us to survive. Because mm-hmm. life, life by nature is random. You can't predict life. It happens randomly to you. So when experiences cannot be predicted, we, in an attempt to survive, have been given this wonderful ability to create a story about every experience we get and to catalog that story in the form of a memory. Mm-hmm. A memory that comprises of visual, auditory, olfactory, sound, um, experience, stimulus, mm-hmm. as well as a story about it. Example, if my girlfriend, the first time if I ever kissed a girl, if she was wearing a particular perfume, and if the emotion, emo- emotional experience of of that kiss was intense and indelibly embedded. Now, many, many years later, 20, 30, 40 years later, even though I may not be married to that girl, if I ever happen to come across that scent, whoever is going to be wearing that scent, I'm going to be attracted to that person. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because my survival mode of my brain has formed a pattern and a story around it and uses it to relate to this new exposure to that experience and immediately categorizes it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Because of this, I am not really experiencing the second person who was wearing that scent. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am yeah. experiencing the second person who was wearing that scent through the ghost of that first girl. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. In this way, we become strangers to experience. Oh. This is the reason why children, children who does who don't have a full library of such stories built up, they experience life with far more immediacy and far more intensity and far more uh, involvement than adults because adults are not experiencing life. They are experiencing their stories about life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Since many of these stories were automatically made, we are no longer crafting how life manifests to us. We are just being victims of the way of our own stories. Mm-hmm. Well, this, you, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask a different thing, but I wanted to know you. You engage in so many diverse fields, and possibly this is a piece of it. But what is the common denominator that ties these things together? To empower people to experience their possibility. Oh, I love that. Say yeah. it again. So, so life, people. the only reason for life 
is to empower people. There's no other reason for life. Hmm. And in the process of empowering people, you yourself get empowered. There is no other reason. I fall in love because of empowerment. Because, see, when I'm with my wife, we are two people who, in the privacy of our room, engage in mutual empowerment where we each tell the other through the medium of our five senses that the other person is the most important person to me in my life. And in this way, I validate that person's existence and I get validated in turn. People use a word, a three-letter word called sex to it, but that is not it. It is actually just a tool in my in my work in my work i deal with people who are elderly and for them physical intimacy for some reason or other may no longer be possible and i had a guy who had a breakthrough the other day he said you know doc i can make love to my wife holding her hand oh <laughs> and because it's only my five senses and I'm just using a different part of my body. Oh, that's, that's very it. romantic. He's pretty enlightened. It is. Yeah, yeah. but it, it took it took six months of discussion and dialogue for him to get over the feeling that he was not good enough. <laughs> and when he did that, he came one day and he was all up high about it. He said, well, I said, what's up? You know, you, you seem you seem in great spirits. So yeah, I just figured out I could make love to my wife by holding her hand. Mm. <laughs> I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your work as a writer. Uh, what uh, what drove you to begin writing? Well, I always was a very good uh, writer. I had a good power of language in school. I I always used to win competitions in my essays. Oh. But uh, COVID was experienced by us at a much more visceral level. And I recognized that my work of 40 years was being uh, torn apart by a divisive rhetoric that was not just the U.S., it was all over the world. Hmm. And uh, I felt that if, you know, I had to say something and get a message out, about why this is not the way we need to live and solve the problems of our life. Ah. We have huge problems. We all have huge problems. I mean, all globally, there are great uh, problems, but the problems won't be solved with an us versus them kind of mentality. Um, and the problem with us versus them is that the reason we have that is everyone thinks that the things that is most important for their life is available only in short supply and that they have to grab it while they have the chance. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it will be taken away by somebody else. And the reason they think that way is because they think that things that matters to them, the most important things, are actual physical objects bounded by time and space. Mm -hmm. In actuality, it is not. It is your relationship with your life that is actually the most important thing. And out of that relationship, all the important things come out of it. 
Mm-hmm. And your relationship with life is not bound by time and space. It is just bound by your own existence. Mm-hmm. And the people who are truly successful, the people who are really uh, what I call the producers of life, they don't live as if uh, life is not enough. The rest of the world live like uh, the, what I call the poverty mentality, the not enough life, not enough time, not enough health, not enough love, not enough friends, not enough wealth, not enough this, not enough that, all the time. And it's always not enough, not enough, not enough. And even if they are trying to excel and become new, very good at their job, they are occupy, They are starting that from the point of view of not enough. I am not good enough. Right now, I don't have these skill sets. I'm going to acquire this and get to something else. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when they get to something else, they still don't have enough of that. So the I learned early on that I don't need to be a victim of a not enough life because the everything that I need in life is already given to me. I just have to find the key to unlock it. Hmm. It is not outside of me, it's inside me. So that's so how I you already, started writing. That's how you started yes. writing. So, so what I did started you... writing I started writing to convey that. Mm-hmm. But I conveyed it through the experience of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that's what the represents is all about. And and is your writing about finding this key to the relationship with yourself in life? It is about how we use that to help people deal with the pandemic. And what's minute. the name of it again? It's called the Reaper's Dance. It's Reaper's Dance. Yep. And so, what, and Ravi, what do you see? Oh, beautiful. He's showing a copy of the book for YouTube. People can see that. I don't know if uh, you And audio, it. they won't see it, but I can see it. It's beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, so the Reaper's Dance. And it's a great it's title. The yeah, Reaper's Dance. And Ravi, what do you see as the greatest challenge for humanity today? Oh, that is the problem of the thinking of uh, what I call the us versus them. Mm. Because if that is removed, uh, if if people start seeing that it is not us or them, but we, when we see the world as we rather than us, when us and them start being seen as we, we suddenly see things from a point of view of common. Right now, people don't look at each other as humans. We look at each other as as genders, as men, women, or nowadays uh, <laughs> transgenders. But, uh, but Or we look at them as ideologies, you know, red, mm-hmm. blue states, as, as a Republican, Democrat, or whatever. We we don't look at human beings as human. We look at people based on certain filtered ideas uh, and identities. And uh, before you, you before a child even thinks of itself as a boy or a girl, it thinks of itself as a human, as a being. Mm-hmm. That is the core existence. Yeah. The you know ima- just imagine if a child was born in a in a on a desert island and believed that it was a girl and 
because that's just a label right mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with the with the biological structure it is a label applied to a set and because the majority of people call men or boys as boys they all consider themselves as boys if all the boys and the girls started talking on the label as girls they would become girls mm-hmm. and vice versa <laughs> yeah um we are talking about how varied your interests and career has been have you been as successful in every have you been a success in everything that you've done and what do you see as the number one ingredient for success and define success please there is a hebrew saying that um, is quoted in the movie schindler's list mm-hmm. and in that movie uh, there is uh, ben kingsley and uh, liam neeson liam neeson is uh, acting as oscar schindler and ben kingsley i don't remember his character's name he's a, he's a jewish uh, person mm-hmm. and at the end oscar schindler uh, is on his knees before ben kingsley and he says i should have done more i should have saved one more i could have saved one more i could have mm-hmm. saved one more and ben kingsley holds his hands and looks into his eyes and says there is a hebrew saying that if you say one person i shall consider as if you saved the whole world mm. so in terms of success i think i have saved thousands of words mm. so i think that's good enough success for me mm-hmm. um, i have been successful in everything i do and so there are two components to success one is your personal sense of satisfaction which i always got and the other is uh, public acclaim and that has come to me in various ways in some fields earlier and some fields not yet but regardless i've always been a success mhm and so how we look at that too how we frame yes. it for ourselves if we frame it as success yes because we have to frame it personally for ourselves and and then i have another question how do you define excellence <laughs> I, i i tell people this i i have a favorite quote on that i say excellence does not compete excellence is an another person's interpretation of what you do it mm. is a story it is mm. a, it is a, it is a judgment because it is always the other people who say it's excellent people who are actually excellent are not focused on excellence they are focused on on doing a job to their set set of values by which they define how they want to perform the rest of the world looks at them and say oh they are excellent mm. but people who are actually excellent really don't compete at all with anybody they compete only with themselves their mm-hmm. own set of values mm-hmm. so excellence is the pursuit of a personal set of values without any fault or deviation that is excellence the pursuit of a personal set of values that's great 
I do you can too. be an excellent you you can be an excellent murderer too. You can be an excellent <laughs> criminal too. Well, yeah, there are many. Just, yeah, because it's, excellence has no morality. Ah. Excellence is just it, excellence is just perfection in what you do. If you happen to do it to to the damage of other people, then you're excellent in that. You're mm. the world's oh. gri- you're the world's biggest criminal. <laughs> yeah. That's wow. very scary, but so true. <laughs> well, yes. you you lead some very high-performing teams. What are they, and how did you build these teams? So I I build my my clinic. All my staff in my clinic um, have been with me, varying from twenty-two years to uh, six years. Uh, but they're all long-serving members. And the way I build it is by giving them a stake in the outcome. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, I'll give you an example. In my clinic, for example, every one of my staff by rotation is given one Friday off. So everyone, every month they have a long weekend. Nice. That's um, the way the and because to be able to do that, we adopted where everyone is able to do everyone else's job equally well. Oh, that's amazing! So so when I did that, automatically what happened was Mm. there was no more job entitlement. So no one felt that they were irreplaceable because everyone can do their job. <laughs> and by versa, by vice versa, they can do everyone else's job. So that automatically gave, but instead of filling them with fear, it filled them with opportunity because now I turned around and said, because everyone can do everyone's job, everyone can give each other a break. Ah. Mm-hmm. If someone falls sick, we don't need to kill ourselves and kill each other for falling sick. We can say, okay, she's fallen sick. She is going to take a break and get better. And in the meanwhile, we will take up her job and do it. So mm-hmm. we are able to give each other vacations. We are able to give each other the freedom to be human. Mm-hmm. So when you do these kind of things, automatically the team becomes no longer a team it becomes a cohesive unit Uh uh, it's not a bunch of employees they are all one they all working for each other Mm. and they work to help each other have you taught other have you taught other companies how to do this kind of thing i've i've talked about it uh you Mm. um, the problem comes with uh, it requires a lot of organizational will to do it. A lot, see, a lot of companies will are will start by saying, "Oh, I don't want to have silos of competence. I want to break open the silo." But what they do is, they only make it a bigger silo. That's right. They don't really give each person the job ability to do the job across the entire spectrum of the workflow process. Mm, yeah. 
it's a See, lot of training. It's a lot of training and it's a lot mm-hmm. of competence. And then they have to also uh, manage the conversation that will come up. Oh, if I can do the general manager's work, then why am I not being paid a general manager? Mm-hmm. You know, so the, how do you manage that conversation? Yeah, how do you I... manage? In my office, we manage that conversation differently. I say that here's what this is your salary, and guess what? If we produce X amount of revenue, then automatically you get a bonus every three months. For mm-hmm. us, bonuses are not once a year; it is every quarter. Nice, oh, mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. And the bonuses, the bonuses are in the range of a thousand dollars, and the clinic picks up the tax on that. So it's actually thousand oh. dollars in their bank. It is not thousand dollars that out of which taxes are taken. I think That's you must nice. have a very happy workplace. Absolutely. Well, how do you maintain focus under pressure? When you, this is more, it's a more complex uh, con- example than this. So initially I wasn't good at it. I used to get flustered. Uh, the transition came when I started seeing myself not as the doer of things, but as a vehicle through which things got done. Mm-hmm. So when I started looking at my work that I do with people as a as a calling, as a service, that I am put on earth with a unique set of skills to actually that no one else has, it became less about whether I can get the job done or something, but that this is an opportunity for something to do. The, the, that was the... That was the first breakthrough. The second thing that really made a big difference, so now I go through life very easily, is that I don't have to get everything done at by 5 o'clock. <laughs> so one of the things I understood, I took a step, was at 5 o'clock I'll get up and leave no matter how much work is left on my desk. And mm. I started doing that. And one week into that, I found that I found found a miraculous thing that things that did not need to get done the same day, the next day did not need to get done at all. Aha. Uh-huh. Mm. That's so, an interesting concept. I like that. Most people don't realize. You see, let's take a problem that needs to get solved. Most people think that that problem, you are the only person who's going to be able to solve the problem. What I discovered is that when the universe tosses up a problem, that problem simultaneously has more than one person addressing it at the same time. Mm. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. A patient calls me and says that they are going to run out of medicine in three days. Can I send a prescription? Mm-hmm. When he leaves that phone call in my office, that phone call actually just comes to me for me to fill, but it also goes to the pharmacist. It also goes, that message also goes to my desk. 
and someone in these three or four people will fill it one way or the other mm mm you you get it yeah but mm-hmm. if i were to suddenly position myself as the only person who's going to bat the ball across the net when i actually have a team of three or four people already batting i am no longer functioning like it's a doubles match i'm playing a doubles match in tennis single handed yeah Yeah, sooner or later, sooner or later, I'm going to either feel overwhelmed or I'm going to miss balls. Mm-hmm. But if I say, "Okay, I'm going to hit this ball because it's easy for me to hit," and you, I don't have time today. You guys take care of it. It get, gets taken care of. If you have a team that's always taking care of things, then you pick up and move, pick up and move, and then go. At the end of the day, if things that you got left behind, there's someone else that gets gets it done. Right, and you return the favor. You return the favor. Now people have a word for it. It's called delegation. But in my case, we are actually doing delegation with what I call instinctive delegation. Oh. That everyone, because instinctive delegation happens when you have a team of people all aligned to getting the ball across the net. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Most of the organizations they delegate by saying. Oh please can you do this can you do this so then you are actually handling the ball yourself that's if right if you are going to have to sit here and tell people what to do and when to do it you are handling the ball right. yourself that's right that's right and that takes a lot of pressure off of you when you delegate yes. and delegate correctly um and on that note is that what distinguishes a leader from the rest of the the group being able to delegate wisely or are there no, other qualities le- no the leader delegation is a byproduct of being a leader when you create a space where everyone is aligned then delegation happens automatically in that space uh, the leader hardly ever thinks of delegation mm-hmm. but be- the quality of being a leader is to create a space where people feel empowered to be, be their best selves how do you do that by the doing the first thing that i first told you at the beginning of this podcast be a space where people feel empowered to be free of their mm-hmm. narrative not be a victim of their narrative ravi what would you like our listeners to have as a takeaway today learn to control your narrative that is your most powerful So that is your superpower. If you can control your narrative, you can make the world work for you. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. It, but what's the best way to do that? You mm-hmm. can't do it until you learn how to step into the experience away from the story. Oh, mm-hmm. that's powerful. Yeah. Thank you. And not get controlled by the story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank for you. Today. Yeah. Thank you. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Dr. Ravi Iyer, physician, scientist, inventor, author, and trop and entrepreneur, CEO of Active Power Inc., and a gentleman who empowers people. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, Dr. Iyer. 
Thank you. And we want to request that our listeners please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you like, and also on YouTube on our Late Boomers podcast channel. Drop us a line on lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, and follow us on Instagram, at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins, and at Late Boomers. We always strive to inspire and entertain you. Thanks again, Robbie. Thank you. I have a question for you. Yes. Okay. Why did you call your podcast Late Boomers? <laughs> Go on, Kathy. It's a it's a twist on baby boomers and people that are making a large boom sometimes late in their life or they've done a pivot and they're on to something new and they're having a big boom boom so, effect. It's so, a double entendre. So this is your second act. Well, or we could say third. Second, third, fourth, however many lives we've chosen to live. (laughs) Thank you again. Thank Thank you. you. That was great. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.